What I want to do right off the bat here is review some of the things that we looked at last time. Uh, we were talking about the importance of understanding the gospel message and how that if we fail to clearly grasp the gospel, we can lose a lot of what we really need in the Christian life. And I tried to debunk a metaphor for the gospel that we tend to think of, and that is the metaphor of the gospel as training wheels. Training wheels are the things that we need to get us started, and then once we grow out of them, we go ahead and dispense of them. And so what I'm saying, instead of training wheels, we could think of the gospel as the A to Zs of the Christian life. No matter how great a compo or say an, an author is, he cannot move past the 26 letters of the alphabet. Even Shakespeare needed all 26 letters of the alphabet to be able to write his sonnets and his plays. And so we as Christians, we don't move past the gospel. We don't grow out of the gospel. We don't take tools and, and remove ourselves from the gospel as we would with training wheels. No, we grow in the gospel. We grow in our appreciation and understanding of this marvelous message that is so vast in scope and so complex that even angels are fascinated by it. And that's the nature of the Christian life. We grow in the gospel. And, and so I also suggested another metaphor and that is of a plower or a farmer who is plowing and he's keeping his vision, his focus on a point, a fixed point on the horizon to make sure that he doesn't veer one way or the other. So we talk about the importance of, of making this straight path in our lives and the way to do that is by keeping one thing fixed in our vision. Just like someone who's plowing. I know that maybe none of you have actually been behind an ox with a old ancient plow but let's let's suppose that you can imagine yourself as doing that and so you have the blade and it's it's ripping through the ground and suddenly it hits a rock that throws it off to the left and with that single point, say a tree, right off in the distance, the farmer who's behind the plow immediately puts it back to the right and gets that that row straight again. And he keeps moving that way. That's what we must do to the gospel. So often our pride or sense of shame or guilt or despair or whatever can throw us off one way or the other and we keep our mindset focused on the gospel. Jesus died for me. Yes, I'm a sinner. That humbles me. But yes, Jesus did die for me. That exalts my joy. And so we continue on plowing that straight path as we grow in the gospel. That's what I'm saying as a good metaphor for the gospel because we tend to think, oh, that's what we need to enter the Christian life instead of what we need in growing into the Christian life. And so to illuminate for us the importance of the gospel, we're going to be looking at these counterfeits, gospel counterfeits. And that is these messages that sound a lot like the gospel, that use a lot of the same terminologies of the gospel. They'll talk about grace and God's blessing and they'll talk about shame and guilt and all these kinds of things, but they're mixed in a different way. And they're a fatal combination because they're not the true gospel. And so last time we looked at two of the counterfeits. The gospel is about what we want God to do. And what did we say is a name for that gospel or that counterfeit. The prosperity gospel, actually there's no one prosperity gospel, there are just a lot of varieties of the prosperity gospel, ways in which people are saying, I want to be blessed, I want to be happy, I want to be wealthy. And so this is a very marketable message that people can say, think things like this, God is a great king and he doesn't want his children walking around in rags. God doesn't want you to live like a pauper, he wants you to live like a prince. And if you could believe that, you could 
could attain it. And you could have the mansion on the hill and you could have your best life now. And this message is woven in with all kinds of really good things. I mean, you think about it. There's a logic to this. Doesn't God want the best for your life? I mean, isn't he a good God? Doesn't he want to bless his people? Isn't his, his heart for, of love, doesn't it just overflow to his children? Yes, of course it does. But what is the problem with the prosperity gospel? Here is its fundamental flaw. It misdiagnoses the gravest problem of the human condition, and that is that we are sinners condemned before God. It may deal with a lot of peripheral matters, but it doesn't deal with the heart issue. And the heart issue is that we all face God's wrath. Our biggest problem is that we're not is not that we're driving a car that's 10 or 15 years old. That's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that we don't shop at all the name brand clothing, and that we have to shop at other places that that aren't as elite or whatever. That's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that our house doesn't have the square footage we want it to. Our biggest problem is that we stand condemned before a God who expects complete righteousness and holiness. And that's what these prosperity gospels completely overlook. It's not just in the realm of wealth and money. It's also in the realm of emotions. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to have healthy, thriving relationships. God doesn't want you to be living in despair. Is that true? Does God want you to be happy? Of course, in His presence there is fullness of joy. At His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. But it misdiagnoses the path to the happiness. This is what Peter talked about when he preached in Acts chapter 3. Is that God sent Jesus Christ to bless you. How does He bless you? By turning you away from your sins. That is the path of blessing. The path of blessing comes through forgiveness of sins. And so you, you can see what's so appealing about these Gospels is that they contain just enough truth to make it believable, but just enough error to make it deadly. And so we talked about this whole idea of counterfeits. I asked you, how many of you have seen counterfeit money? Several of you raise your hand. I asked how many of you made counterfeit money? A few of you admitted to that too. Well, we're not in the business of making counterfeits, but what we want to do is identify counterfeits. And what was the other counterfeit we looked at last time? For those of you who maybe just uh, didn't, weren't there and just for the benefit of anyone who missed that. What was the other one? Okay, yeah, the social gospel. And that is, here, here is this, this is what the social gospel says, or a variety of the social gospels is, live like Jesus. That's the gospel. Jesus came as the highest moral example. He came as a person who is in tune with God, who unlike any other mortal before him, understood his own spark of divinity, just like each one of us needs to understand. Now, that is the social or varieties of the social gospel. Uh, how many of you have heard the phrase, preach the gospel, use words if necessary? All right. Now, it's almost like saying, introduce yourself, tell me your first, middle, and last name. Use words if, if necessary. It's like, it doesn't work that way. You, you have to use words. The gospel has a certain content. It mattered that Jesus lived. And it mattered that he died. And it mattered that he rose from the dead. There is, there is historical events that happened. And this is all essential. It's not just the fact that Jesus lived a morally exemplary life. Last time we also talked about the components of the gospel. Whenever you read a gospel proclamation in the Bible, uh, you read the historical facts, uh, the theological meaning, 
and also the personal significance. So, for instance, uh, and, and because several of you weren't here, this is really important to get. So I actually want, this is not covering our content. We're not getting the new material yet. But I want you to see this by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay, I want you to see the three components of any gospel presentation. When, when someone in scripture explains the gospel, uh, preaches the gospel, these things are in place. The historical events, the theological meaning, and then the personal significance or the personal response that is required. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15 is the classic passage on the gospel in which Paul says, beginning in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died. Alright? Christ died. Think about this. Historical fact, is that stating historical fact or theological significance? That's a historical fact. Okay, Christ died. But look at the next three words. For our sins. Historical fact or theological significance. That's the theological significance. That's the meaning that Christ died. Why did he die? And this is something that is debated even today. Jesus died as a martyr to a good cause, some might say. Or Jesus died merely to demonstrate how much God loved us. Now, is that true? That God commends his love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us? Yes, it is true. Jesus' death does commend God's love. But what happened because of Jesus' death? Why did he die? He died for people's sins. Historical fact, theological meaning for our sins, and what's the personal response? We see that earlier in verse 3. Uh, and actually, we can go all the way back to verse 1. Which you received, in which you stand. That message, rooted in history, with theological meaning, Christ died for our sins, was raised for our justification. It, it isn't just like headlines on a newspaper that you could read and forget about. It actually has something to do with us personally. It requires a personal response. If God is holy and I am a sinner and yet there is a way of salvation that is given by Jesus Christ, He died for my sins, then what does that mean? It means I must believe in Him. That's why when Peter preached in Acts chapter 3, he talked about the historical facts. He said Jesus, was, Jesus died, he was killed by wicked men, he rose from the dead, that's a historical fact. And he did that for your sins, that's a theological significance. And then he waits until the people ask, what must we do? Repent, he said. Now, there is the personal response. So, in any presentation of the gospel, we must have those, those components in place. Now, we're going to look at the uh, two more counterfeits. And the counterfeits that we're going to look at this morning are closely connected. And also, the, the ones that we most easily fall prey to. Uh, but before I explain these, I want to remind you that gospel counterfeits, 
that is distortions of the gospel, they find their source not just from some religious cult or heresy out there. Gospel counterfeits find their source in our hearts. Why? Because the gospel inherently is a pride-crushing message. And we don't like our pride to be crushed. The gospel says that you are more sinful than you could ever imagine. That's not a message I like to hear. And it's a hard message to remember because I'm constantly trying to make myself think that I'm better than I really am. And I'm trying to project a, an image of myself to you that's better than what it really is. And so this message that says, you are a horrible sinner who deserves to go to hell, that finds an enemy right inside our hearts. The gospel also teaches that the result of this message is a pursuit of pure and holy living. Now that's something else I also struggle with. I like to believe that I can live as I please. And so right within my heart, there are enemies that are pushing the gospel both ways. My grasp of the gospel is always in danger of being distorted by my pride or my sense of despair or by my desire to please myself. Always, constantly. That is why Paul and the other writers in the New Testament letters are constantly urging their readers to walk worthy of the gospel. It's not training wheels. It's not just the entry point of the Christian life. It's something without which we'll, we'll be constantly veered to one side or the other. And these two gospel counterfeits that we're going to look at are so closely related that I want to show them to you at the same time, first of all, uh, and then uh, show them, break them down separately. To begin with, a lot of people think that it's easy to tell who God accepts and who God doesn't. As in, the people who God doesn't accept are those who are living just as they please, and the people that God does accept are those who are trying to do what's right. But, that whole idea that you can tell who's saved and who's not, but the saved people are doing the right thing, and the, the, the unsaved people aren't doing the right thing, just this pretty easy, clear divide. Like, you've got the re religious people over here, and your irreligious people over here. And then we just make this divide. Religious people, they're good. Irreligious people bad. Right? The problem with that is that the people that Jesus was most in conflict with throughout his earthly ministry were not the irreligious people, but who? They were the religious people. And that tells us this. There's more than one way to rebel against God. You can rebel against God just by saying, I don't care about the Bible, I don't care about God, I don't care about His rules, I'm going to do things my own way. Okay, that's one way to rebel against God. Here's another way to rebel against God. I'm going to live a very religious life to try to please God. That is actually a way to rebel against God. Now, it, it sounds to us a little shocking because we so often associate like religion and religious practices with a right relationship with God. When in fact, Jesus himself said, 
And this is from Matthew chapter 21, verse 31. He said to the most religious leaders of his day, the strictest men, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. What characterizes these people is that they are trying to get into a right relationship with God based on what they do. Based on their high standards. Based on their religious practices. And so what we see that it is neither religion nor irreligion that puts someone to a right relationship with God. And so understandably, some people, they, they reject that way of living and they say, hey, I'd rather, they look at religious people and they'd say, I'd rather be authentic and do my own thing than to be so grouchy and hypocritical and shroud myself in layers of religious practice. And so they go off the other way. So, what does the gospel teach? What's, what's at the heart of these confusions are this. Both sides seem to have some understanding of the gospel. Because if a person who says, okay, you people that are so legalistic and, and religious, I know something about grace. And that is that we can't earn our salvation anyway, and once saved, always saved. <laughs> Here's the problem. We're going to call this approach uh, to the gospel that sees religion and obedience as a way to salvation as legalism and the other one, lawlessness. So, legalism says, I do good things so God accepts me. As in, as if, thank you, uh, as if good works precede salvation. Lawlessness, on the other hand, would be the, okay, I'm going to define my own identity, I'm going to live as if, uh, how I want to. It, it says, well, salvation and good works have nothing to do with each other. Uh, maybe they say, God accepts me so it doesn't matter what I do. The gospel teaches this, that we do good things not in order to be saved, not to get a right relationship with God, but because we have a right relationship with God. And you can state it as simply as this. We love Him and all that is associated with that because, why? He first loved us. You see, the order is absolutely crucial. And as we get this right, we won't get anything right about the gospel. But there's this constant confusion about the order of these things. And the confusion is rooted in an inclination of our own hearts that wants, on the one hand, to achieve something and to have some boasting before God and to get to heaven and say, I did a really good job, didn't I? And God says, you did. I owe it to you to, to let you in. This, is, this conflicts with the heart of the gospel and with the nature of God that says no one is going to boast in His presence. On the other hand, because of our moral laziness and because of our desire to, to uh, forge our own moral path, we say, well, it doesn't really matter what we do. But the gospel teaches us that the reason why we do good things, what motivates good works, what enables good works, is not, because, is not our, our effort to please God, but because God has accepted us unconditionally. And that unconditional acceptance doesn't result in moral laziness, but 
here's what it does. It wants us to be zealous. It makes us want to be zealous for good works. You see, the pursuit of holiness and the receiving of God's grace go hand in hand. Okay, so I want to show that to you uh, before we get into uh, the, the detail of these counterfeits. On your handout there, you'll see this counterfeit three. The gospel is good news about what I must do, and what goes in the blank there be what? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Okay, legalism. Legalism. The, God, the gospel is good news about what I must do. Most often this counterfeit comes as an assumption or feeling that I must do something to gain God's favor. It says, I do good things so God accepts me. And this, in a formal sense, can be codified in certain uh, rules that, uh, certain religions that teach that God's favor is gained by good works. This is such a deep impulse in our own hearts that this flavors entire religions, doesn't it? That some religions teach, here's a list of things to do And if you do them, you'll be good for all eternity. It's not, the source of this doesn't just come from the outside. The source of this comes from inside our hearts. And that's where we we see this uh, counterfeit. Why is this so believable? Uh, It is because we often carry a deep feeling of guilt. We, we do feel guilty about our sin. We want to do something about it. And there's something gratifying about going through a day and you didn't blow up anybody. Uh, you drove the speed limit. You didn't get pulled over. You were nice. You walked an elderly lady across the street. I mean, you, you got everything in order that day and it just felt really good. And then the next day, you did everything wrong. You, you, you slept in too late. And you ate too much, and you yelled at your co-workers, and you got home and kicked your dog, and it went really bad, and you lay down and put your head in your pillow at night, and you're thinking, this was a really bad day. I mean, we, we feel, carry this, this feeling of guilt, and we just find ourselves exhilarated by the sense of accomplishment, and that is one thing that makes this counterfeit so believable. But there's an even greater reason what, why this counterfeit is, is believable. And that is because the Bible itself is full of commands to do good and abstain from evil. I was talking with somebody uh, a while ago, a couple years ago maybe, and, and he said, I, I want to read the Bible because I want to know all the things I'm not supposed to do today. Because, in his mindset, the Bible is good insofar as it is a list of do's and don'ts. Well, here's what he has right. The Bible has a lot of commands in it, doesn't it? I mean, there is something called the Ten Commandments. And even more, there is something called the Sermon on the Mount, in which not only are the Ten Commandments reinforced, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill... But the Ten Commandments are intensified. It's not sufficient for you merely to abstain from committing adultery, Jesus teaches. If a man looks on a woman to lust after her in his heart, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. Those are some high standards. You've heard that it said of old time, Jesus teaches, don't kill. I say, 
If you're angry with your brother for without a cause, then you're guilty of ju- you're in danger of judgment. So, is there when when you look at this this legalistic counterfeit, doesn't it have some element of truth, enough truth in it to make it believable? Aren't there things that we're supposed to do and don't do? Of course. But here's what the Bible also teaches: is that apart from transforming grace, apart from a supernatural work that comes from outside you, none of those works will affect favor with God whatsoever. Like, this is what the whole Old Testament is showing. That no matter how high the standards, and no matter how God condescends to give people His law and send them prophets and give them priests and a very detailed, meticulous system of instruction for how to have a right relationship with God, they can't do it. And so what the law does is it humbles us to show us our moral incapability. Not to give us a ladder to climb to heaven. And so there is enough truth in this to make it believable. Just like when you're looking at a counterfeit dollar bill, there, there's enough features of that, of that bill to make you think that it might be real. But the error is fatal. So what is wrong with this counterfeit? And here's, I think we can put our finger on the cause of its Error is that it confuses the message of the gospel with the results of the gospel. It confuses the message of the gospel with the results of the gospel. And and in order to illuminate this for us, I, I want you to actually turn to some passages here. I think it's important for us to see from Scripture why this is so. So go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. In this little epistle from Paul to this pastor, we have many exhortations. Exhortations which Titus is supposed to pass on to the people whom he pastors. And at the heart of this letter is this description of what the people of God are supposed to be. In chapter 2, look at verse uh, 14. I'll begin with the latter part of this verse. It says... Uh, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And if that's all that you were to read or if that's all that you would understand, what you would think is this, I've just got to be zealous for good works. I've just got to, to, to... clean myself from lawlessness, I've just got to try really hard, if that's all you see. But you have to realize that this exhortation is rooted not in law, but in grace. Because if you back up a few verses and look at verse 11, you see that it is the grace of God that teaches us to do this. So go back to verse, look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And it is the grace of God that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is because He has demonstrated to us His grace and changed us by His grace and transformed uh, and uh, declared us to be righteous by His grace, flowing from that, flowing from God's salvation is our good works. 
You, you see the order there? The order that we looked at on that, on that diagram? It's not good works in order to get God's favor. It's God's favor that results in good works. Now the order is absolutely essential. It confuses, this counterfeit confuses the message of the gospel with the results of the gospel. The results of the gospel are holiness. Zeal for good works. Separating ourselves from ungodliness. But this counterfeit confuses the two. Uh, another aspect of it, uh, of the confusion, is that it fails to account for how sinful we are and how holy God is. And people that fall into this legalistic mindset somehow forget that they are completely unable to earn a right relationship with God by themselves. There are other passages that I could take you to. Um, just for the sake of time, we'll move on here. But this does take us to uh, one of the central paradoxes of the gospel. And that is that people who have been given salvation and a right relationship with God and know it and are secure in it are the ones who are most zealous to live holy lives. Like you'd think it'd be the other way around. You'd think that people who were assured, oh, I'm saved no matter what, that you've just cut off any motivation to do what's right. As if you have to hold hell over people's heads in order to get them to do what's right. That's not it at all. The people that are most zealous, authentically, joyfully, from the heart, are those who have been the recipients of the lavishing of God's grace. That, that is what motivates our, our holy living. And there, there is a paradox to the very Christian life. Like, if someone were to ask you, say a person who doesn't understand the gospel, or doesn't, isn't familiar with it, they would say, they would say why, are you, why are you always trying to do the right thing? You, you must be trying to get to heaven really hard. You must be working really hard at this. What do you say? No. I, I actually, God has accepted me. And it's not going to change. Th then why do you work so hard? Because he's accepted me. And that's not going to change. I, do you have to pursue holiness as a Christian? The answer is yes. Why? Not because you're trying to earn God's favor, but because you have it. And this takes us to something that is so important to understand about the gospel. And it is not just a, an exciting message, although it's exciting. It's not just a, a, a thought to ponder. Wow, isn't that fascinating? Isn't that paradigm shifting? No. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And here's what that means. It's not just an idea that has changed our way of thinking. It is a message that has brought us from death to life. It's given us a supernatural ability that we did not have before that even though it starts out very small, it is this. It's this, it's this change where there was, this is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. He says, when old things have passed away, new things have come. You, you are a new person in Jesus Christ with new desires and, and new affections that you didn't have before. And, and the central paradox of the gospel is that those who are guaranteed a relationship with God are the ones who pursue holiness out of joy and gratitude and not guilt and despair. So, 
that's that counterfeit. We, we, we find this deeply into our hearts. Uh, this, the danger of believing this deeply within our hearts. Um, but before we go into the, the fourth one, uh, I want us to just reflect on how often this can be our thinking. Because I don't want us to just think, oh, this is a problem for people in, in legalistic religions. I, I want us to be able to look inside and see, I tend to do this all the time. I, I tend to think that that I, I've got to I've got to have that perfect day, and then I could look up and I can see God's fatherly smile saying, "Good job, good job." Right. Here's the truth: is that He has declared us righteous. He sees us in Christ. He's pleased with Christ, and as since we're in Christ, He's pleased with us. Uh, so often our our ministry, our service, what we do, how we talk, is, is motivated by a sense of guilt. Or even tr- by trying to maintain our image before other people. People think I'm a certain way. I want people to think I'm a certain way. And so I've got to maintain this. I've got to uphold this image. The cross of Jesus Christ has already destroyed your self-image. How? Because it's a proclamation of how sinful we are. We don't need to excuse it anymore. That's why we're free to confess it. That's why we're free to say, I am a great sinner. That's why we are free to say with Paul that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And not with a little sniff at everybody outside my circle. But we can say with great humility and great joy, among whom I am the very worst. That's the gospel. It is, it is a sense of God's holiness, like we're going to look at Isaiah later on this morning, that's fused with God's grace and therefore results in joy. You, you can detect a legalistic mindset when people serve without joy. When people do the right thing for the wrong reasons. When people are constantly trying to do, uh, maintain a certain standard in front of other people. That, that's always the evidence of a legalistic mindset. Yeah. When, when people go through the motions, they sing the songs, maybe they even have a smile on their face, but it's not in their eyes. <laughs> there, is, there is a joy that, sh- that just undergirds everything we do if we grasp the gospel. So we have to be aware of that counterfeit. Alright, but, it's evil twin. Which we can also easily slip into is lawlessness. And what does this say? It says this, Well now, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Ooh, that sounds pretty attractive to me. (laughs) More sin, more grace. Huh. Alright. This again, you, you see... The razor edge of the gospel. You see its paradoxical nature. If you embrace the gospel, you're not even going to think that way as long as you're... Okay, let's go back to the metaphor of keeping your eye fixed on that immovable point as you're moving your plow along a straight furrow. If you're keeping your eye on the fact that Jesus died for you and, and the great sacrifice and the great love it took for him to do that, you're not going to want to wallow in the sins for which Jesus died. That, that's why 
keeping the gospel is central even to, not only from avoiding this legalistic mindset, falling into the ditch of legalism, but also in falling the ditch of lawlessness. Oh, it doesn't matter what I do. No, that's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches that the more you understand what Jesus did for you, the more you want to live in, holy, in holiness. The gospel means it doesn't matter what I do. I assume you have that in the blank now. What's wrong with it? It fails to see that the mark of true conversion is growth in holiness. And it often misunderstands the Bible's teaching on assurance of salvation. How is it that we find assurance of salvation? Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 13 of a sower who went out to sow. And as he sowed, some of the seed fell on different kinds of soil. Some fell on the well-worn, trodden wayside. Some fell among thorns. Some fell on a layer of rich soil, right beneath which was rocks. And some fell into good soil. You know the interesting thing about this parable is that all four soils showed signs, initial signs of life. They all did. In fact, one of them, Jesus says that with joy, receive the word and begin to grow up. But then thorns came and choked the life out. What was the ultimate proof of, of a good soil? It was the good soil was the only soil that produced fruit. You see, so often we can get in this mindset as believers that the assurance of our salvation comes from the fact that someone called on the name of the Lord. After all, doesn't the Bible say, call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved? Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is true. That is the call to, that is the, call to the gospel. But didn't Jesus say, many shall say to me, Lord, Lord. The fact is, many call Jesus Lord. But Jesus said this, by their fruits you shall know them. Here's a problem. We often look for assurance of salvation in the wrong thing. And, and we, we don't have time to deal with this, uh, but I'll, I'll just begin to get into it. We need to, we'll finish it up next time. But when you look at assurance of salvation in the New Testament, there are primarily two ways in which we get assurance. And the first is the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. We read about that in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are what? That we are the children of God. And then there's another way in which we gain assurance, and that is by the fact that our lives become increasingly like Jesus Christ. This is what Peter is talking about in the, the tested genuineness of your faith. How do you know whether your, your faith is genuine? You know that your faith is genuine when it produces fruit. That's the trying of your faith. And so... We have other passages of Scripture that, that we can go to. We, we can go to First uh, John. First John chapter 3, in which John is writing and he, say, he says this, this is how people know that we're the disciples of God. This is how that we can assure our hearts if we have love for God and others. Right? So this whole idea of lawlessness can be confirmed by a wrong, wrong teaching on the assurance of salvation. 
When in fact the Bible says that assurance of salvation is rooted in the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit and also the outer confirmation of that inner testimony that comes from the fruits that people bear. Why is this important? I, I believe, and I, I think that this is what Scripture testifies to as well, that true revival happens when people who thought they understood the gospel realize they didn't understand the gospel and come to embrace it for the first time. When people who thought that they were good and right with God because of everything good they did suddenly realize that their righteousness is like filthy rags. And when they see for the first time that Jesus Christ is the only one that could save them. Sometimes we don't even know what we're leaning on until God illuminates our hearts and sees us, sees we have this love affair with our own works and righteousness. And when people have been going to church for a long time suddenly cry out to the Lord for the first time and realize, I am lost. Here's what's happening. That's gospel revival. People that had false assurance suddenly realizing that Jesus loves them so much and that they're greater sinners than they could ever imagine. Like, that's gospel revival. That's why this is so important to get the gospel right because it's possible for people to be part of a church for years after year after year and decade after decade and live under a sense of false assurance. Here's what the gospel teaches. That Jesus... Because Jesus saves us, and only Jesus saves us, that's what's the motivating impulse of our good works. And on the other hand, it doesn't mean that good works can be separated from salvation. They are the inevitable outflow of that relationship with God. And that produces a people that is motivated by joy and humility at the same time. And that's why it's so important to get, these, get the gospel right. Keep that that vision of the gospel in our focus so that we can plow a straight line.